scripture reading this morning is Judges 7, verses 1 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands into their mouths, was 3,000 men, 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down... Go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance." When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent and struck it, so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, There is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian, and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, and I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp, and at the beginning of the middle watch, 
when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerara and as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been close to a divorce? I mean, not necessarily for yourself, but even proximity of someone going through that painful process. Undoubtedly, some of you have been through the pain of a divorce, and I'm sorry for the pain and for the hardship that that must have entailed. It's not an easy thing when a relationship that is supposed to be forever uh, is not. There's a new TV show I'm somewhat enamored with. Uh, It's called Ted Lasso. It's on Apple TV. And it's just uh, a super fun show and very clever. It's uh, written and uh, kind of was formulated by Jason Sudeikis, who's an old SNL cast member. And uh, Sudeikis writes into the first season of the show himself, his character, Ted Lasso, going through a very painful divorce. And because I'm interested in the show, I've been following Sudeikis a little bit when he pops up in, uh, in the media. And he was being interviewed recently, and not that long ago, his wife, Olivia Wilde, asked for a divorce. And uh, Jason Sudeikis said it was the most painful point in his entire life, that he hit uh, a bottom. It was such a low experience that something that he valued and treasured and thought was secure was rendered insecure. Did you know that God is a divorcee? In the prophets, God declares to Israel, I divorce you. He declares that he no longer is married to Israel and thus becomes a divorcee. Now, thankfully, God has remarried us in Christ. We're the bride of Christ, right? But we're, in, we're located in a place in the Old Testament that's headed to that decree of divorce issued by God. And the reason that God ultimately will come to that decree of divorce is because of the apostasy that continues to grow and afflict Israel, that they simply will not be faithful uh, to God in the midst of their relationship. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that if you are married to Christ, if you are unified to him by his spirit, that you can be divorced from him. But scripture loves to speak of our relationship to God in the metaphor of a marriage relationship. And so if we think of your relationship to God this morning in the context of a marriage, How's your marriage? Can you not keep your hands off each other? Or are you sleeping in different rooms? What kind of marriage would you choose to represent your relationship with God this morning? This is one of the reasons we're considering the book of Judges. Because the book of Judges is this gift. It's a warning of don't go down this road. As my kids approach driving age, some have moved into it, some are moving into it. 
I like to have them sit down and watch lots of horrific crashes on YouTube. Not joking. Right? I want them to be terrified. I want them to have a healthy fear of what can happen on the road if they're careless. Judges is like that. Starting with Gideon and moving forward, all of the stories of judges from this point out are crashes. They're ugly. But they're a warning to us, right? Paul will say later that the Old Testament serves as this pedagogical tool, this way of teaching us and informing us on not making the same mistakes that Israel made. And so we're looking at Gideon and trying not to make the very mistakes that he made in the course of his life uh, when God called him into his service. Now last week, if you were here, we considered the first part of the story of Gideon. Gideon's story is so long, uh, much like Samson's, that it will have to be considered over numerous weeks. And God called Gideon. Gideon said, no, not me. And God said, yes, you. And Gideon eventually, in the darkness of night, because he was afraid to do it during the day, pulled down the place of worship of a foreign god that was existent in his own yard. Right? His dad, Joash, had set up a, an altar to Baal. Gideon goes and tears it down. The town wants to kill Gideon. Uh, things get worked out. And so uh, then the spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon. And as I mentioned in the children's lesson, the armies are gathered. You've got armies uh, of the Canaanites that are gathered. The, the tribes of Israel are gathered. And it's about to get uh, very serious as they come to one another. But today, right, as we consider the story of moving into that battle and God's gracious and amazing and miraculous deliverance of the Israelites, we're going to see that Gideon's heart is not in the right place. In other words, Gideon is struggling with two, two things, really. One is unbelief, and one is a self-centeredness that we might call narcissism. And these two things are preventing him from having a right and real relationship with God. So, of course, we're going to reflect how, do, uh, how does unbelief affect our hearts? How does narcissism affect our hearts? And then we'll move forward to see about God's grace. So those are uh, our points this morning. Number one is considering doubt and unbelief. Number two is considering a narcissistic faith. And number three is considering patient grace. Doubt and unbelief, narcissistic faith, and patient grace. All right, how do we see doubt and unbelief playing out in Gideon's life? Now, we just reviewed the story of the fleece and see that Gideon is not trusting God. He's not willing to move forward until he has some miracles that prove to him that God is actually going to deliver. And I've heard over the years some, many people say, whether in the pulpit or in a Sunday school class, well, Gideon is just wrestling with doubt. I think that's a huge mistake. And I think it's a dangerous mistake because doubt is something that's okay. Unbelief is not, and what Gideon is really demonstrating is unbelief. Now, how do we see that? Gideon was an odd figure. He's odd in this way. No judge receives more assurances from God than does Gideon. Gideon is the only judge that God speaks to directly. No one will demonstrate more hesitancy than Gideon. He's given the most encouragement from God and yet is the slowest to uh, obey. And this is unbelief and not doubt. And the reason that it's dangerous to confuse the two is that doubt is simply part of um, the matrix of Christian faith. Think about it for a minute. If I asked you how would you define faith, 
without using any notion of doubt, how would you do that? You can't define faith without doubt. Right? There are almost two sides of the coin. Uh, doubt is the treadmill that faith runs on. If we had no doubt, then faith would not be an entity. It wouldn't be something that exists. Now, as I seek to follow Christ, I sometimes wonder, why is faith such an important part of God's matrix, his economy in this world? You ever wondered that? Why doesn't Jesus just show up and sit present in the flesh and start to give orders and we can do away with this whole faith thing? Why is faith? really important to how God is engaging the church, right? The author of Hebrews writes, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must display faith. Why is faith so important? Well, it led me to think, I've thought over the years, what does faith actually do? Why does it actually render something that's good for us? How do we see this playing out? It must, being that God is good, and I think there's at least two aspects of faith and doubt that are important to keep in mind. One is that faith and doubt facilitates relationship. Imagine you're newly married, you're in your first year of marriage, and all of a sudden your spouse has some unexplained absences and some odd receipts. What do you do? You start to think and wonder, what's going on? You might ask some questions. But if you've been married 25 years and the same thing happens, it's not the same deal. You may not think twice about it. Why? Because over 25 years, you have experience in which doubts have always been met with the faithfulness of your spouse. And so by the time you get to 25 years, you have a much deeper relationship and something that might have shaken you initially is not going to shake you now right? because your relationship is deeper and more complex and better. And this surely is working out in our relationship with God. Right? As he calls us into faith and we wrestle with doubt, it's something that as he shows up over and over again, not only in the story of Scripture, but over and over again in our own lives, he cultivates a deeper relationship with us that actually also grows us up and helps us to be ready to handle bigger tasks, bigger challenges, and that's the second aspect of faith. If the first is relationship, the second is maturity. Does not faith mature us in a way in which we know God more deeply and which we can participate to a greater extent in his kingdom? I think every child goes through wrestling with faith and doubt with their parent. Right? When your child is young, you hover over them. You protect them all the time. You follow them around. You make sure to stand in between them in danger. But as your child grows, you start to back away. And think about the first time. Children, you may even, this may have happened today. You fall and your parent isn't immediately coming to rescue you. And you start to have doubts. Does my parent love me? Is my parent really for me? Why isn't my parent comforting me right here and right now? This is where the parent is thinking, okay, I think it's time for you to start picking yourself up. It's time for you to grow up a little bit and for you to move down that track of, of independence and maturing and becoming more competent as an individual. Or very similarly, uh, you know, I work as a chaplain in a hospital and we have interns come in who are training to be chaplains. And what do we do? Well, for a while they shadow us as we make visits to rooms 
And after that goes by a little while, we, we shadow them and let them take on some easy visits. And after that, they shadow some critical visits. And then eventually, we allow them to, we kind of supervise as they work their first critical visit. And then we send them into a critical visit, and we say, you're on your own. There's a maturing. Now, in that, they're wrestling all the time with doubt in themselves and doubt of whether or not the chaplain, the trained chaplain, is going to come in and intercede and be helpful. But it builds up in them a maturity and grows them up to be ready to take on a larger task. And so I think both these aspects of faith and doubt are essential to our lives as Christians. And even though we may get frustrated and we may, friends, too, now, let me say, I don't know a Christian I respect. It, you know, and I've, I've been in the church my entire life and have spent most of my life um, pursuing some form of vocational ministry. And I don't know any Christian that I respect and think highly of who wouldn't in a heartbeat tell you that they absolutely wrestle with some form of doubt. That there is some aspect of the Christian story or scripture that they think, man, that's just tough. I'm going to trust in God and I'm going to obey but I have to admit, that's, a, that's hard. And this is part of our faith. It's part of our maturing. It's part of our developing relationship with God. Both these are aspects are essential to our growth as Christians. And what we see in Gideon's life is he's not really willing to, um, to temper his doubt. It becomes unbelief, which raises the important question, how do you know when doubt becomes unbelief? Doubt becomes unbelief when you start negotiating obedience. When you start saying, I don't need to obey until these prerequisites are met, which is exactly what Gideon's doing. His heart's moving away from God toward unbelief because he's saying, God, unless you deliver in this place, I don't need to actually be faithful and follow through on what you've commanded. Now we're going to see the fuller impact of Gideon's unbelief before we're done. But before we get there, we need to consider his narcissistic faith. Are you familiar with the, I mean, the term narcissism gets thrown around left and right in our culture today. In an age of social media, there's no shortage of uh, narcissists. Narci- the term narcissist comes from Greek mythology. It's the story of Narcissus, who was a hunter of exceptional beauty. He was so beautiful that he resisted any girl's romantic advances toward him and eventually fell in love with himself. He was gazing at his reflection in a pool of water and was so captivated by his own beauty that he never left that spot. He gazed at himself for the rest of his life until he died and there sprung up a flower after his death which still bears the name uh, Narcissus. Not a bad metaphor or analogy for much of our culture today. But what you need to see is there's a certain self-centeredness in Gideon's heart as this story unfolds that uh, allows us to see his own narcissistic tendencies which will take over for the rest of his story. Look at Judges 7-2 with me. Verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God looks at the situation, he says, Israel, you've got way too many troops because if we go to battle and I deliver you, what you're going to say is, God didn't do this, we did it. You're going to take credit for what I've done. So out of love, 
so that they come to the right conclusion after the fact, God pairs down the army. Right? Immediately he says, let's let everyone who's afraid go home. Right? Can you imagine just the announcement going out amongst the Israeli troops? Hey, guys, if you're afraid and nervous, you can go home. God said so. And thousands leave. Right? They just march home. That would be a tempting offer. You know, going to war would be scary. Uh, if you're scared, go home. And God says, actually, we still have too many troops. So uh, we're going to go take a drink of water. And based on how you're going to drink, based on how you you drink, we're going to choose you or not choose you. Now, this is a confusing passage. If there's some lesson here in how people drink, uh, it's been lost to history. Some theologians think... uh, the, the guys who uh, cupped up the water to their mouths were better because they drank in a way where they could still see enemies approaching. Uh, but other people, other theologians think they were the worst 300 because they're compared to dogs. And that was an insult in ancient times. Jude, uh, ancient Israel reviled dogs. And so to compare them to dogs is insulting. So were they the best elite? Are they the worst? We don't know. The point is, ultimately, that it gets pared down to 300 men, which is a tiny, tiny force compared to the armies that the Canaanites uh, have assembled. Now, in the midst of this, even as the army is being um, cut down in order for God to make sure that Israel doesn't make the story about themselves, we see Gideon's narcissism in two ways. First, um, we already noted that Gideon demands miracles, Right, from God to demonstrate that God is going to be faithful to his promise. But what is harder to see in the English at the end of chapter 6 is that Gideon, from that point forward in the story, will stop using the personal name of God. In other words, Gideon has been talking to Yahweh up until the end of chapter 6. But from the end of chapter 6 forward, almost exclusively, he's going to refer to God as Elohim which is simply a generic term for any God, right? It's the word you would have used for Baal. Uh, it's, a G with a, it's a God with a lowercase g. And so what the author is communicating to us is that Gideon is moving away from God and is not having as close a relationship and only refers to God in a generic sense, not in a personal sense. So that's the first way that we see Gideon is way more concerned about himself in the story than he is with Yahweh. The second way we see his narcissism is in verses 14 and 15. And you can look there with me. This is finally, uh, so the army's been pared down. God knows that Gideon is still nervous. He says, listen, if you need a little encouragement, you and your associate or assistant can sneak down into the camp of the Midianites and I'll give you some encouragement. And so they, they sneak in at night and they're listening to a person uh, relay a dream of a barley cake, a loaf of bread rolling down into a tent. Now, another thing that's lost to history is why in the world you got two Midianites and one says, I had this dream, this loaf of bread rolled into a tent. And the other Midianite says, oh, this is the sword of Gideon. I, how you make that connection, nobody knows. Why does a loaf of bread... It's a tricky Hebrew word. We're actually not sure exactly what it means. But why would a loaf of bread uh, immediately cause a soldier to be like, oh, yeah, that's Gideon. We're in trouble. We don't know. Uh, But that's how it it plays out. And this is how Gideon responds in verses 14 and 15. His comrade answered, 
This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Now, follow me here. God has promised victory to Gideon in a personal voice multiple times. He's performed miracles for Gideon to assure him of his faithfulness. But by far, the most exciting Gideon gets in the whole, whole story, in fact, the only time that he worships, is when he hears a dream that's about him. Right? He's sitting on the edge of the camp, and the Midians is like, oh, we're really worried about Gideon. Gideon's the one who's going to come and bear the sword, and we're in big trouble. This is actually a huge turning point in Gideon's life. Up to this point, he's been timid and fearful and unwilling to move forward. After this, Gideon kind of goes on a, um, a, this, this reign of terror. Uh, he becomes bold. Uh, he becomes fearless. He becomes, uh, he's threatened by other Israelites and will try to take them out. Uh, he becomes something of a despot. Right? And what changes his heart? This notion that he is the one wielding the sword that will defeat the Midianites. Right? It's, he sees himself on the center of the screen, and suddenly that's when he chooses to worship. Not when God has spoken or was, has performed miracles for him, but when he sees a dream that's all about him. And from this point forward, Gideon will make the story all about him in a desperately sad way that will leave Israel in a much worse place than when they started under his leadership. And this is the narcissism that Gideon puts on display. In what ways is your faith narcissistic? In what ways do you, do you move toward God, but it's really all about you? I knew a woman in the church, and she, uh, she was wealthy, and she loved to study her Bible and do Bible studies and listen to all kinds of Christian uh, information, podcasts and music and this and that. But you, you'd ask her to do something in the church, and she would say, oh, I, I don't have those gifts. Well, apparently she had no gifts at all, because we asked her to do everything, and she never found something that matched her gifts. But she was always happy to show you how marked up her Bible was, or she was always help, happy to share with you how much she had listened or studied this in any given week. And you realize, oh, your faith really isn't about God. Because you don't, you don't show me anything about Jesus. It's really just about you and your righteousness and what the, the, the posture or the character that you get to assume in the church amongst other people that makes you feel important and significant. Right? What is that? It's a narcissistic faith. It's a faith that's like Gideon's, and it's not one that facilitates relationship. So we need a faith. We need something that's bigger than our narcissism. And thankfully, we have that. That's God's grace. And this brings us to our last point, which is patient grace. Despite Gideon's unbelief and despite his narcissism, God kept showing up in a way that's just patient and kind. Right? If, this was your, if Gideon was your kid, he would be in his room, doors shut. You wouldn't be talking to him. But God continues to make sure that the story moves in the right direction and continues to show up and encourage Gideon all the way to delivering him in this, 
this fantastic tactical move in which they terrify the camp simply by crashing jars at night and having torches surrounding the camp, right, and shouting and blowing horns so that the camp is thrown into chaos and actually the soldiers attack each other. It's a brilliant deliverance, and God has been gracious throughout. The grace that God shows to Gideon in that provision for him is the grace that God shows to us in the context of the cross. And a story reminded me of that recently. It's a true story, the story of Kamesh Sankaran, who shares his testimony. Uh, Kamesh was a PhD student at Princeton studying aerospace engineering. He was on a scholarship that was funded by NASA. He was no lightweight in terms of intellect. He had grown up in India, first of his family to actually go to college, and was a very devout Hindu. Uh, took his faith, uh, his Hinduism, and his Indian nationalism very seriously. But he happened to be paired with another uh, engineer uh, in the lab, and they worked every day, all day together, for 12-hour stretches. And over time, they would talk about life, and they would talk about faith. And eventually, Kamesh realized that his partner was a, his lab partner was a Christian. And uh, he began, to, <laughs> the lab partner in Kamesh's telling realize that Kamesh does not understand very much about Christianity, and so he eventually explains that Christ died on the cross to bear our sins and to reconcile us to God. And Kamesh thought that that was the most ridiculous thing he had ever heard. He thought, that doesn't sound uh, like a God at all, and this is what he says. This was something I had never heard before, and it offended me. I was a deeply religious person, someone diligently striving to be good. How could my friend think that anyone, much less someone like me, was a sinner in need of salvation? Yes, I had problems, but wasn't I capable of fixing them myself? Why would I need Jesus to bear my sins? Someone oriented by Hinduism, but very confident in his, his, uh, he would say of his life, I had a good family, I had a good marriage, I was excelling above all of my peers, right? What? I may have some problems, but I don't have sins, and therefore I don't need a Savior to handle my sins. And you can hear some of the narcissism that's, that's in that. When God exhibits his grace to Gideon and Israel, he pairs down that army. And that's what God is going to have to do in the life of Kamesh, is pare down the armies that he thinks he has so that he's in a place of greater vulnerability and he can't keep taking credit for a false righteousness. And at the same time, Kamesh was intellectually curious, so he asked for, so this seems outlandish, lab partner, why don't you suggest to me something I can read to consider the Christian faith? And the lab partner recommended Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And Kamesh says, well, I guess I need a Bible. And so he began to read through the Gospels. And he eventually gets to uh, Luke 18, which is uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? They're praying, and one is, uh, please, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, says the tax collector. And the religious leader thanks God for how good and righteous he is. And this is what Kamesh said. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector also blew the fuse of my understanding of God. How could a man who defrauded his own people by conspiring with foreign occupiers have a better outcome before God than a religious leader who followed all the rules? I had to get to the bottom of this Christian thing. When you hear his, his understanding of the world start to shift, right? Based on his Hinduism, Kamesha said, I'm just fine because I am a pretty good person. I don't need anything. Everything in my life is in order. 
But then he starts to hear a story of a God who honors the tax collector who's abusing his own people, right, by collecting taxes from Israel for the Romans. He's taking advantage in Israel's eyes of Israel. And God says, that man went home justified. Now, that doesn't make any sense. That's a story that turns the world upside down. It turned Kamesh's world upside down. And so he began, he continued to consider Christianity, but wasn't really that close until uh, this. In a brief but decisive period, God exposed my false sense of self-sufficiency, which I had based on financial prosperity, academic success, and a strong relationship with my family. In short, I experienced unexpected and unexplainable failures in each of these areas, financial, academic, and relational. The blows came from different directions, but their cumulative effect was devastating. By removing the frail crutches on which my life was built, God exposed the reality of my profound weakness, especially my utter inability to fix relational brokenness. I was in more pain than I had imagined possible, and I was devoid of the props on which I was accustomed to resting. Knowing no other way out, I decided to end my own life. In the midst of this darkness, a voice within me spoke, this is why Jesus had to die for you. What a beautiful and compelling story. The Kamal has, it's like, I've, I've, I am a righteous person because all these things are in order. And God came along, right, just like he sent all the troops of Midian or of Israel home, and he knocks out all of those crutches. And suddenly, Kamal has to say, well, what am I going to do now? I can't, I can't give my life meaning, and I can't be successful in my paradigm. I'm a failure. Therefore, I might as well end. But instead, God's grace meets him there, he speaks to Kamesh, and that day Kamesh calls his lab partner and asks if he can go to church with him, which begins uh, the rest of the story. Kamesh's life coming apart was an act of God's grace, just like God uh, paring down the Israelite army was an act of his grace so that Israel would not come to the wrong conclusion, even though Gideon will come to the wrong conclusion and will continue to make the story all about himself. Kamesh, looking back at his conversion and now being a devout uh, Christian, every genuine Christian conversion is a miracle, a transition from spiritual death to eternal life, from enmity with God to adoption into his family. Yet God seems to take special delight in seemingly impossible cases, like Paul, a former persecutor, so that the riches of his grace might shine all the brighter. When I consider the chasm between my old outlook on life and my new life in Christ, I can only marvel at God's work of redemption and fall down at his feet in praise. Do you struggle with unbelief? Yes, you do. Do you struggle with narcissism? Without a doubt. But remember today that even as we see Gideon fail, he's the judge that will make the story about himself. There's a judge still to come who even when he asks for the cup of God's wrath to be taken from him, will only make the story about God the Father when he goes to the cross in obedience. And that's why even as we come to the supper this morning, we fall down at his feet in praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the stories of people like Gideon and Israel that help us to remember that it's so easy to go in the wrong direction. Please forgive us for our unbelief. Please forgive us for our narcissistic faith. But we are so grateful for your patient grace that you labor and labor 
to, uh, to facilitate redemption and to offer forgiveness and mercy and to see the story move in the right direction. We praise you, the God who hangs on the cross and even when betrayed by your own creation says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It is this grace that melts our heart and nourishes us. And we pray that you would meet us in the midst of it as we come to partake of you. We ask it in Christ's name.